0: chapter ninety six part two of the cloister and the hearth by charles reed this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tom denham he kept the key of this paddock and never let any man but himself enter it nor would he even let little gerard go there without him or margaret children are all little canes said he. In this oasis, then, he spoke to Margaret, and said, Dear Margaret, I have thought more than ever of thee of late, and have asked myself why I am content and thou unhappy. Because thou art better, wiser, holier than I. That is all, said Margaret promptly. "'Our lives tell another tale,' said Gerard thoughtfully. "'I know thy goodness, and thy wisdom, too well to reason thus perversely. "'Also I know that I love thee as dear as thou, I think, lovest me. "'Yet I am happier than thou. Why is this so?' "'Dear Gerard, I am as happy as a woman can hope to be this side of the grave.' not so happy as I. Now for the reason. First, then, I am a priest, and this, the one great trial and disappointment God giveth me along with so many joys, why, I share it with a multitude. For, alas, I am not the only priest by thousands that must never hope for entire earthly happiness. Here, then, thy lot is harder than mine. "'But, Gerard, I have my child to love. "'Thou canst not fill thy heart with him as his mother can. "'So you may set this against you.' "'And I have ta'en him from thee. "'It was cruel, but he would have broken thy heart one day if I had not. "'Well then, sweet one, I come to where the shoe pincheth methinks. "'I have my parish.' and it keeps my heart in a glow from morn till night there is scarce an emotion that my folks stir not up in me many times a day often their sorrows make me weep sometimes their perversity kindles a little wrath and their absurdity makes me laugh and sometimes their flashes of unexpected goodness do set me all of a glow and i could hug em meantime thou poor soul sittest with heart of lead gerard of very lead see now how unkind thy lot compared with mine now how if thou couldst be persuaded to warm thyself at the fire that warmeth me ah if i could hast but to will it come among my folk take in thine hand the arms i set aside and give it with kind words hear their sorrows they shall show you life is full of troubles and as thou sayest truly no man or woman without their thorn this side the grave indoors i have a map of gouda parish not to o'erburden thee at first i will put twenty housen under thee with their folk what sayest thou but for thy wisdom i had died a dirty maniac and ne'er seen good amants, nor pious peace? Wilt profit in turn, by what little wisdom I have, to soften her lot, to whom I do owe all? Margaret assented warmly, and a happy thing it was for the little district assigned to her. It was as if an angel had descended on them her fingers were never tired of knitting or cutting for them her heart of sympathizing with them and that heart expanded and waved its drooping wings and the glow of good and gentle deed began to spread over it and she was rewarded in another way by being brought into more contact with gerard and also with his spirit all this time malicious tongues had not been idle "'If there is naught between them more than meets the eye, why doth she not marry?' etc. And I am sorry to say, our old friend Joan Catle was one of these coarse sceptics. And now, one winter evening, she got on a hot scent. She saw Margaret and Gerard talking earnestly together on the boulevard. She whipped behind a tree— now i'll hear something said she and so she did it was winter there had been one of those tremendous floods followed by a sharp frost and gerard in despair as to where he could lodge forty or fifty houseless folk out of the piercing cold and now it was oh dear dear margaret what shall i do The manse is full of them, and a sharp frost coming on this night. Margaret reflected, and Joan listened. You must lodge them in the church, said Margaret quietly. In the church? Profanation. No. Charity profanes nothing, not even a church, soils naught, not even a church. Today is but Tuesday go save their lives, for a bitter night is coming. Take thy stove into the church, and there house them. We will dispose of them here and there, ere the Lord's day. And I could not think of that. Bless thee, sweet Margaret, thy mind is stronger than mine, and readier. Nay, nay, a woman looks but a little way, therefore she sees clear. I've come over myself to-morrow. And on this they parted with mutual blessings. Joan glided home remorseful. And after that she used to check all surmises to their discredit. Beware, she would say, lest some angel should blister thy tongue. Gerard and Margaret, paramours, I tell ye. There are two saints which meet in secret to plot charity to the poor. In the summer of 1481, Gerard determined to provide against similar disasters recurring to his poor. Accordingly, he made a great hole in his income, and bled his friends—zealous parsons always do that—to build a large xenodochium, to receive the victims of flood or fire. Giles and all his friends were kind, but all was not enough, when, lo, the Dominican monks of Gouda, to whom his parlour and heart had been open for years, came out nobly, and put down a handsome sum to aid the charitable vicar. That dear good souls,' said Margaret, "'who would have thought it?' "'Anyone who knows them,' said Gerard who more charitable than monks go to they do but give the laity back a pig of their own sow and what more do i what more doth the duke then the ambitious vicar must build almshouses for decayed true men in their old age close to the manse that he might keep and feed them as well as lodge them and his money being gone he asked margaret for a few thousand bricks, and just took off his coat and turned builder, and as he had a good head and the strength of a Hercules, with the zeal of an artist, up rose a couple of almshouses, parson-built. And at this work Margaret would sometimes bring him his dinner, and add a good bottle of Rhenish. And once, seeing him run up a plank with a wheelbarrow full of bricks which really most bricklayers would have gone staggering under she said times are changed since i had to carry little gerard for thee ay dear one thanks to thee when the first home was finished the question was who they should put into it and being fastidious over it like a new toy there was much hesitation. But an old friend arrived in time to settle this question. As Gerard was passing a public house in Rotterdam one day, he heard a well-known voice. He looked up, and there was Denis of Burgundy, but sadly changed, his beard stained with grey, and his clothes worn and ragged. He had a cuirass still, and gauntlets, but a staff instead of an arbalest. To the company he appeared to be bragging and boasting, but in reality he was giving a true relation of Edward IV's invasion of an armed kingdom with two thousand men, and his march through the country with armies capable of swallowing him, looking on, his battles at Tewkesbury and Barnet, and reoccupation of his capital and kingdom in three months after landing at the Humber with a mixed handful of Dutch, English, and Burgundians. In this, the greatest feat of arms the century had seen, Denis had shone, and whilst sneering at the warlike pretensions of Charles the Bold, a duke with an itch but no talent for fighting, and proclaiming the english king the first captain of the age did not forget to exalt himself gerard listened with eyes glittering affection and fun and now said Denis, after all these feats patted on the back by the gallant young prince of gloucester and smiled on by the great captain himself here i am lamed for life by what by the kick of a horse and this night I know not where I shall lay my tired bones. I had a comrade once in these parts that would not have let me lie far from him, but he turned priest and deserted his sweetheart, so tis not likely he would remember his comrade. And ten years' play a sad havoc with our hearts and limbs and all. Poor Denis sighed, and Gerard's bowels yearned over him. "'What words are these?' he said, with a great gulp in his throat. "'Who grudges a brave soldier's supper and bed? Come home with me!' "'Much obliged, but I am no lover of priests, nor I of soldiers. But what is supper and bed between two true men?' "'Not much to you, but something to me. I will come.' "'In one hour,' said Gerard, and went in high spirits to Margaret, and told her the treat-in store, and she must come and share it. She must drive his mother in his little carriage up to the manse, with all speed, and make ready an excellent supper. Then he himself borrowed a cart, and drove Denis up rather slowly, to give the women time. On the road, Denis found out this priest was a kind soul, so told him his trouble, and confessed his heart was pretty near broken. "'The great, use our stout hearts and arms and lives till we are worn out, and then fling us away like broken tools.' He sighed deeply, and it cost Gerard a great struggle not to hug him then and there and tell him. But he wanted to do it all like a story-book.' Who has not had this fancy once in his life? Why, Joseph had it, all the better for us. They landed at the little house. It was as clean as a penny, the hearth blazing, and supper set. Denis brightened up. Is this your house, reverend, sir? Well, tis my work, and with these hands, but tis your house. "'Ah, no such luck,' said Denis, with a sigh. "'But I say I!' shouted Gerard. "'And what is more I say... "'Courage, camarade! Le diable est mort!' "'Denis started, and almost staggered. "'Why, what?' he stammered. "Who, who, "'Who art thou that bringest me back "'the merry words and merry days of my youth?' AND HE WAS GREATLY AGITATED. MY POOR DENIS, I AM ONE WHOSE FACE IS CHANGED, BUT naught ELSE. TO MY HEART, DEAR, TRUSTY COMRADE, TO MY HEART. AND HE OPENED HIS ARMS WITH THE TEARS IN HIS EYES. BUT DENIS CAME CLOSE TO HIM, AND PEERED IN HIS FACE, AND DEVOURED EVERY FEATURE. And when he was sure it was really Gerard, he uttered a cry so vehement it brought the women running from the house, and fell upon Gerard's neck, and kissed him again and again, and sank on his knees, and laughed and sobbed with joy so terribly that Gerard mourned his folly in doing dramas. But the women, with their gentle, soothing ways, soon composed the brave fellow— and he sat smiling, and holding Margaret's hand and Gerard's, and they all supped together, and went to their beds with hearts warm as a toast, and the broken soldier was at peace, and in his own house, and under his comrade's wing. His natural gaiety returned, and he resumed his consigne after eight years' disuse, and hobbled about the place, enlivening it, but offended the parish mortally by calling the adored vicar comrade, and nothing but comrade. When they made a fuss about this to Gerard, he just looked in their faces and said, What does it matter? Break him of swearing, and you shall have my thanks. This year Margaret went to a lawyer to make her will— for without this, she was told, her boy might have trouble some day to get his own, not being born in lawful wedlock. The lawyer, however, in conversation, expressed a different opinion. "'This is the babble of church, men,' said he. "'Yours is a perfect marriage, though an irregular one.' He then informed her that throughout Europe, excepting only the southern part of Britain, there were three irregular marriages, the highest of which was hers, viz., a betrothal before witnesses. This, said he, if not followed by matrimonial intercourse, is a marriage complete in form, but incomplete in substance. A person so betrothed can forbid any other bands to all eternity." It has, however, been set aside where a party so betrothed contrived to get married regularly and children were born thereafter, but such a decision was for the sake of the offspring and of doubtful justice. However, in your case the birth of your child closes that door, and your marriage is complete, both in form and substance. Your course, therefore, is to sue for your conjugal rights it will be the prettiest case of the century. The law is all on our side, the church all on theirs. If you come to that, the old Batavian law which compelled the clergy to marry hath fallen into disuse, but was never formally repealed. Margaret was quite puzzled. What are you driving at, sir? Who am I to go to law with? Who is the defendant?' why, the vicar of Gouda! Alas, poor soul, and for what shall I law him? Why, to make him take you into his house, and share bed and board with you, to be sure. Margaret turned red as fire. Grow mercy for your reed, said he. What, is yon a woman's part? Constrain a man to be hers by force? "'That is men's way of wooing, not ours. "'Say I were so ill a woman as ye think me, "'I should set myself to beguile him, not to law him.' "'And she departed crimson with shame and indignation. "'There is an impracticable fool for you,' said the man of art. "'Margaret had her will drawn elsewhere, "'and made her boy safe from poverty.' marriage or no marriage. These are the principal incidents that in ten whole years befell two peaceful lives, which in a much shorter period had been so thronged with adventures and emotions. Their general tenor was now peace, piety, the mild content that lasts, not the fierce bliss ever on tiptoe to depart, and above all, CHRISTIAN CHARITY. On this sacred ground these two true lovers met with an uniformity and a kindness of sentiment which went far to soothe the wound in their own hearts, to pity the same bereaved, to hunt in couples all the ills in Gouda, and contrive and scheme together to remedy all that were remediable to use the rare insight into troubled hearts which their own troubles had given them, and use it to make others happier than themselves. This was their daily practice. And in this blessed cause their passions for one another cooled a little, but their affection increased. From this time Margaret entered heart and soul into Gerard's pious charities that affection purged itself of all mortal dross and as it had now long outlived scandal and misapprehension one would have thought that so bright an example of pure self-denying affection was to remain long before the world to show men how nearly religious faith even when not quite reasonable and religious charity which is always reasonable "'could raise two true lovers' hearts to the loving hearts of the angels of heaven, "'but the great disposer of events ordered otherwise. "'Little Gerard rejoiced both his parents' hearts by the extraordinary progress "'he made at Alexander Hager's famous school at Deventer. "'The last time Margaret returned from visiting him, She came to Gerard flushed with pride. Oh, Gerard, he will be a great man one day, thanks to thy wisdom in taking him from us silly women. A great scholar, one Zinthius, came to see the school and judge the scholars, and didn't our Gerard stand up, and not a line in Horace or Terence could Zinthius cite, but the boy would follow him with the rest? why tis a prodigy says that great scholar and there was his poor mother stood by and heard it and he took our gerard in his arms and kissed him and what do you think he said nay i know not holland will hear of thee one day and not holland only but all the world why what a sad brow sweet one i am as glad as thou Yet I am uneasy to hear the child is wise before his time. I love him, dear, but he is thine idol, and heaven doth often break our idols. Make thy mind easy, said Margaret. Heaven will never rob me of my child. What I was to suffer in this world I have suffered, for if any ill happened my child or thee, I should not live a week. The Lord, he knows this, and he will leave me, my boy. A month had elapsed after this, but Margaret's words were yet ringing in his ears, when, going on his daily round of visits to his poor, he was told quite incidentally, and as mere gossip, that the plague was at Deventer, carried thither by two sailors from Hamburg, his heart turned cold within him. News did not gallop in those days. The fatal disease must have been there a long time before the tidings would reach Gouda. He sent a line by a messenger to Margaret, telling her that he was gone to fetch little Gerard to stay at the manse a little while, and would she see a bed prepared, for he should be back next day. And so he hoped she would not hear a word of the danger till it was all happily over. He borrowed a good horse, and scarce drew rein till he reached Deventer, quite late in the afternoon. He went at once to the school. The boy had been taken away! As he left the school, he caught sight of Margaret's face at the window of a neighbouring house she always lodged at when she came to Deventer. He ran hastily to scold her and pack both her and the boy out of the place. To his surprise, the servant told him with some hesitation that Margaret had been there, but was gone. "'Gone, woman?' said Gerard indignantly. "art not ashamed to say so? Why, I saw her but now at the window.' "'Oh, if you saw her!' a sweet voice above said. "'Stay him not. Let him enter.' it was margaret gerard ran up the stairs to her and went to take her hand she drew back hastily he looked astounded i am displeased she said coldly what makes you here know you not the plague is in the town i dear margaret and came straightway to take our boy away what had he no mother how you speak to me i hoped you knew not what think you i leave my boy unwatched i pay a trusty woman that notes every change in his cheek when i am not here and lets me know i am his mother where is he in rotterdam i hope ere this thank heaven and why are you not there i am not fit for the journey never heed me "'Go you home on the instant. I'll follow. For shame of you to come here risking your precious life.' "'It is not so precious as thine,' said Gerard. "'But let that pass. We will go home together, and on the instant. Nay, I have some matters to do in the town. Go thou at once, and I will follow forthwith.' "'Leave thee alone in a plague-stricken town? To whom speak you, dear Margaret?' "'Nay, then, we shall quarrel, Gerard. Methinks I see Margaret and Gerard quarrelling. Why, it takes two to quarrel, and we are but one!' With this Gerard smiled on her sweetly, but there was no kind responsive glance. She looked cold, gloomy, and troubled. He sighed and sat patiently down opposite her, with his face all puzzled and saddened. He said nothing, for he felt sure she would explain her capricious conduct, or it would explain itself. Presently she rose hastily and tried to reach her bedroom, but on the way she staggered and put out her hand. He ran to her with a cry of alarm. She swooned in his arms. He laid her gently on the ground, and beat her cold hands, and ran to her bedroom, and fetched water, and sprinkled her pale face. His own was scarce less pale, for in a basin he had seen water stained with blood. It alarmed him, he knew not why. She was a long time ere she revived, and when she did she found Gerard holding her hand, and bending over her, with a look of infinite concern and tenderness. She seemed at first as if she responded to it, but the next moment her eyes dilated, and she cried, Ah, wretch, leave my hand! How dare you touch me! Heaven help her! said Gerard, she is not herself. You will not leave me then, Gerard, said she faintly. Alas, why do I ask, would I leave thee, if thou wert? At least touch me not, and then I will let thee bide and see the last of poor Margaret. She ne'er spoke harsh to thee before, sweetheart, and she never will again. Alas, what mean these dark words, these wild and troubled looks? said Gerard, clasping his hands. My poor Gerard, said Margaret, forgive me that I spoke so to thee. "'I am but a woman, and would have spared thee a sight "'will make thee weep.' She burst into tears. "'Ah, me!' she cried, weeping, "'that I cannot keep grief from thee. "'There is a great sorrow before my darling, "'and this time I shall not be able to come and dry his eyes.' "'Let it come, Margaret, so it touch not thee,' said Gerard, trembling.' dearest said margaret solemnly call now religion to thine aid and mine i must have died before thee one day or else outlived thee and so died of grief died thou die i will never let thee die where is thy pain what is thy trouble the plague she said calmly gerard uttered a cry of horror and started to his feet She read his thought. Useless, she said quietly, my nose hath bled. None ever yet survived to whom that came along with the plague. Bring no fools hither to babble over the body they cannot save. I am but a woman. I love not to be stared at. Let none see me die but thee. And even with this, A convulsion seized her, and she remained sensible but speechless a long time. And now, for the first time, Gerard began to realize the frightful truth, and he ran wildly to and fro and cried to heaven for help as drowning men cry to their fellow creatures. She raised herself on her arm and set herself to quiet him. She told him she had known the torture of hopes and fears, and was resolved to spare him that agony. "'I let my mind dwell too much on the danger,' said she, "'and so opened my brain to it, through which door, when this subtle venom enters, it makes short work. "'I shall not be spotted or loathsome, my poor darling. "'God is good, and spares thee that.' but in twelve hours I shall be a dead woman. Ah, look not so, but be a man, be a priest, waste not one precious minute over my body, it is doomed, but comfort my parting soul. Gerard, sick and cold at heart, kneeled down and prayed for help from heaven to do his duty. When he rose from his knees, his face was pale and old, but deadly calm and patient. He went softly and brought her bed into the room, and laid her gently down, and supported her head with pillows. Then he prayed by her side the prayers for the dying, and she said Amen to each prayer. Then, for some hours she wandered, but when the fell disease had quite made sure of its prey, her mind cleared, and she begged Gerard to shrive her. "'For, oh my conscience, it is laden,' she said sadly. "'Confess thy sins to me, my daughter. Let there be no reserve.' "'My father,' said she sadly, I have one great sin on my breast this many years. E'en now that death is at my heart, I can scarce own it. But the Lord is debonair. If thou wilt pray to him, perchance he may forgive me. Confess it first, my daughter. I, alas, confess it! I deceived thee. This many years I have deceived thee here tears interrupted her speech courage my daughter courage said gerard kindly overpowering the lover in the priest she hid her face in her hands and with many sighs told him it was she who had broken down the hermit's cave with the help of jorian ketel i shallow did it but to hinder thy return thither but, when thou sawest therein the finger of God, I played the traitress and said, "While he thinks so, he will ne'er leave Gouda manse, and I held my tongue, o oh, false heart, courage, my daughter, thou dost exaggerate a trivial fault, ah, but tis not all the birds, well, they followed thee not to Gouda by miracle but by my treason. I said he will ne'er be quite happy without his birds that visited him in his cell, and I was jealous of them, and cried, and said, These foul little things, they are my child's rivals. And I bought loaves of bread, and Yorian and me, we put crumbs at the cave door, and thence went sprinkling them all the way to the manse, and there a heap. And my wiles succeeded, and they came, and thou wast glad, and I was pleased to see thee glad, and when thou sawest in my guile the finger of heaven, wicked, deceitful, I did hold my tongue. But die deceiving thee? Ah, oh, no, I could not. Forgive me if thou canst. I was but a woman. I knew no better at the time. Twas writ in my bosom with a very sunbeam tis good for him to bide at gouda manse forgive thee sweet innocent sobbed gerard what have i to forgive thou hadst a foolish froward child to guide to his own weal and didst all this for the best i thank thee and bless thee but as thy confessor all deceit is ill in heaven's pure eyes Therefore thou hast done well to confess and report it, and even on thy confession and penitence the church through me absolves thee. Pass to thy graver faults. My graver faults! Alas, alas! Why, what have I done to compare? I am not an ill woman, not a very ill one. If he can forgive me deceiving thee, he can well forgive me. All the rest, I ever did. Being gently pressed, she said she was to blame not to have done more good in the world. I have just begun to do a little, she said, and now I must go. But I repine not, since tis heaven's will, only I am so afeard thou wilt miss me. And at this she could not restrain her tears, though she tried hard. Gerard struggled with his as well as he could, and knowing her life of piety, purity, and charity, and seeing that she could not in her present state realize any sin but her having deceived him, gave her full absolution. Then he put the crucifix in her hand, and while he consecrated the oil— bade her fix her mind, neither on her merits nor her demerits, but on him who died for her on the tree. She obeyed him with a look of confiding love and submission, and he touched her eyes with the consecrated oil and prayed aloud beside her. Soon after, she dozed. He watched beside her, more dead than alive himself. When the day broke, she awoke and seemed to acquire some energy. She begged him to look in her box for her marriage lines and for a picture, and bring them both to her, and he did so. She then entreated him by all they had suffered for each other, to ease her mind by making a solemn vow to execute her dying requests. He vowed to obey them to the letter. Then, Gerard, let no creature come here to lay me out. I could not bear to be stared at. My very corpse would blush. Also I would not be made a monster of for all the worms to sneer at as well as feed on. Also my very clothes are tainted and shall to earth with me. I am a physician's daughter, and ill becomes me kill folk being dead, which did so little good to men in the days of health. Wherefore, lap me in lead, the way I am, and bury me deep. Yet not so deep, but what one day thou mayst find the way, and lay thy bones by mine. Whiles I lived, I went to Gouda but once or twice a week. It cost me not to go each day. Let me gain this by dying, to be always at dear Gouda in the green kirkyard. Also, they do say the spirit hovers where the body lies. I would have my spirit hover near thee, and the kirkyard is not far from the manse. I am so afeard some ill will happen thee, Margaret being gone and see, with mine own hands I place my marriage-lines in my bosom. Let no living hand move them on pain of thy curse and mine. Then when the angel comes for me at the last day, he shall say, This is an honest woman, she hath her marriage-lines, for you know I am your lawful wife, though holy church hath come between us and he will set me where the honest women be. I will not sit among ill women, no, not in heaven, for their mind is not my mind, nor their soul my soul. I have stood unbeknown at my window, and heard their talk. For some time she was unable to say any more, but made signs to him that she had not done. At last she recovered her breath, "'and bade him look at the picture. "'It was the portrait he had made of her "'when they were young together, "'and little thought to part so soon. "'He held it in his hands and looked at it, "'but could scarce see it. "'He had left it in fragments, "'but now it was whole. "'They cut it to pieces, Gerard, "'but, see, love mocked at their knives.' I implore thee, with my dying breath, let this picture hang ever in thine eye. I have heard that such as die of the plague unspotted, yet after death spots have been known to come out, and, oh, I could not bear thy last memory of me to be so. Therefore, as soon as the breath is out of my body, cover my face with this handkerchief, and look at me no more till we meet again twill not be so very long oh promise i promise said gerard sobbing but look on this picture instead forgive me i am but a woman i could not bear my face to lie a foul thing in thy memory Nay, I must have thee still think me as fair as I was true. Hast called me an angel once or twice, but be just. Did I not still tell thee I was no angel, but only a poor, simple woman, that wiles saw clearer than thou, because she looked but a little way, and that loves thee dearly, and never loved but thee, and now with her dying breath, praise thee indulge her in this thou that art a man i will i will each word each wish is sacred bless thee bless thee so then the eyes that now can scarce see thee they are so troubled by the pest and the lips that shall not touch thee to taint thee will still be before thee as they were when we were young and thou didst love me when i did love thee margaret oh never loved i thee as now hast not told me so of late alas hath love no voice but words i was a priest i had charge of thy soul the sweet offices of a pure love were lawful words of love imprudent at the least but now the good fight is won, ah me! O my love, if thou hast lived doubting of thy Gerard's heart, die not so. For never was woman loved so tenderly as thou this ten years past. Calm thyself, dear one, said the dying woman, with a heavenly smile. I know it. Only being but a woman— "'I could not die happy till I had heard thee say so. "'Ah, I have pined ten years for those sweet words. "'Hast said them, and this is the happiest hour of my life. "'I had to die to get them. "'Well, I grudge not the price.' "'From this moment a gentle complacency rested on her fading features.' But she did not speak. Then Gerard, who had loved her soul so many years, feared lest she should expire with a mind too fixed on earthly affection. "'O oh, my daughter!' he cried, "'my dear daughter, if indeed thou lovest me as I love thee, give me not the pain of seeing thee die with thy pious soul fixed on mortal things.' dearest lamb of all my fold, for whose soul I must answer, O think not now of mortal love, but of his who died for thee on the tree. O let thy last look be heavenwards, thy last word a word of prayer.' She turned a look of gratitude and obedience on him. "'What saint?' she murmured, meaning, doubtless, what saint should she invoke as an intercessor? "'He to whom the saints themselves do pray.' She turned on him one more sweet look of love and submission, and put her pretty hands together in a prayer, like a child. "'Jesu!' This blessed word was her last." She lay with her eyes heavenwards, and her hands put together. Gerard prayed fervently for her passing spirit, and when he had prayed a long time, with his head averted not to see her last breath, all seemed unnaturally still. He turned his head fearfully. It was so. She was gone. Nothing left him now but the earthly shell of as constant, pure, and loving a spirit as ever adorned the earth. End of chapter 96, part 2 Recording by Tom Denham